I can't decide if it's better to call it a seesaw or a teeter-totter. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about leverage, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you can see it, you can be it. But what if you never see it? Then what? I want my daughters and all young women to see a field of role models have gone before them and inspire them to what's possible. So I began the Fearless Portraits Project, an art series and podcast profiling notable women of today and recent history. Listen to the Fearless Portraits wherever you get podcasts. More at danlandau.net. For all of the power that leverage brings, Seesaw and Teeter-Totter are pretty ridiculous names. These are bits of playground equipment that enable a leveling out to happen. Sitting in the right spot, a 60-pound kid can move a 300-pound behemoth with no trouble whatsoever. Leverage is at the cornerstone of modern culture. 700 years ago, if you wrote a book, only one person could read it at a time. Libraries were reserved for the very wealthy and for monarchs, and nobody else had books at all. And if you wrote a book that you wanted to evangelize, you would put scribes together, and they could make copies of your book one at a time. But again, those handmade copies could only be read by one person. One scribe writing one book read by one person at a time. Gutenberg's innovation, movable type, which would have come along with or without him, was that you could print hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of books, and suddenly one author could reach a lot of people all at once. That Martin Luther translating the Bible into German almost burned down all of Europe, because suddenly, instead of a few priests having a Bible, anyone who wanted to could have one. Books created enormous cultural leverage. Around that time, if you went to hear Beethoven or Mozart perform, it was the only time in your life you were going to hear that particular concerto being played, quite likely. And again, when an orchestra was playing, only the people who could fit in the room within hearing distance could hear it. When Shakespeare was putting on plays, only the people who could fit into the theater could hear it. So fast forward to Edison, to recording devices, and then to video. Suddenly, instead of one teacher only being able to teach one student as a tutor or 20 students in a seminar, a great lecture can be used over and over again. Maybe it's Simon Sinek doing a TED Talk that's seen by 20 million people, but it could also be something as prosaic as the best calculus class of its kind being seen by every single calculus student instead of requiring each and every teacher to create a bespoke lecture every time, which makes absolutely no sense. And then from video, we get to this idea of scorekeeping, of prioritization, of rankings. There are bookstores where there is a section of the bookstore called bestsellers because What makes something a bestseller is is a book that's read by people who only read books that are bestsellers. That sounds absurd, but it's true. 
There are people who only go to see box office successes, who only watch TV shows that everybody else is watching. So one source of leverage is knowing who is winning, knowing what's a winner. Another source of leverage is the idea of curation, of gatekeepers, of Spotify picking a podcast and then multiplying it out there. It gives leverage to the creator of that podcast, makes more money for the curator, which gives them more power to do it again, which leads to the last part of this structure, which is the leverage that comes from a network. When 500 people work together to create a movement, it will go further and faster than if one person does. That plugging into networks, multiplying ideas as they spread, ideas that spread win. And so lots of the people who listen to this podcast are cultural creators, but sometimes it's easy to forget where the leverage lies. The leverage rarely lies in the fact that you came up with an arpeggio that's better than anybody else did, that you have a turn of a phrase that you can prove is better, that you have, you get the idea, that the leverage comes from the infrastructure, from the soft tissue that is built around the thing that we are building, ideas that spread win. What makes something remarkable isn't that you think it's good. It's that someone else thinks it's worth remarking about. And that's why the minimum viable audience is so important. This group of people that you choose to custom tailor your work for, one of the reasons you're choosing them is by coming up with something that resonates for them, they are more likely to talk about it. Since they are more likely to talk about it, it's more likely to spread. And that is where your leverage lies. So if we revert to pleasing everyone in the committee meeting, if we revert to sanding off the edges, to making it as acceptable as possible to as many people as possible, we've just walked away from leverage. The leverage that we need to change the culture is to delight someone, not to satisfy or please everyone. That delight, that being able to see people and helping them get to where they want to go is the cornerstone of moving leverage forward. So that's the shortest rant I've got so far, but I thought it was worth sharing with you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with three sort of interrelated questions. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp, that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and nonprofit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. 
Seth. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Raja from Florida. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom to the world. I have two questions related to teaching and school system. My son is doing a first grade in a Montessori school in our neighborhood. He by nature is very shy and takes a lot of time to get comfortable and talk to others. The COVID also worked against him. Because of COVID, he stayed at home and did a virtual schooling for more than one and a half years. And it's been only a few months he started in-person school at this uh, new school. Uh, But the school is making his behavior as a big problem and warning us that he will be retained in first grade if he doesn't improve. I specifically put him in the Montessori school because it will give him a three-year window to master his skills. But teachers are saying that um, he is supposed to meet the expectations set by the county school board by end of first year to get promoted. For example, he is supposed to present a book at his reading level. But if he doesn't talk and if he doesn't present, he won't be eligible I'm very much disappointed by how this kind of a standard expectation is set uh, for all students, especially this is enforced as as early level as the first grade. Instead of really supporting and providing extra care to him, they are only demotivating him by retaining him in the first grade. Uh, I'm not sure if I should try to talk to teachers and principal to convince them and change their expectation? Or should I change him to a different school where there is not a lot of pressure on him? Or should I try to force him to change his behavior and fit into the system? I'm curious to know your advice and thoughts on how to handle this situation. My second question is my wife also started teaching in a different Montessori school. The primary thing they want my wife to do is to basically make the kids obedient and keep the class under her control. Um, If any kid is not fitting into the system, they basically try to find some reason to get them out of the school. My wife really doesn't like it. She really wants to address the individual needs of each kid and help them and, and be kind to them. But the school management is not really encouraging her to do so. Uh, They also pay a minimal salary to her as well as they recruit uh, any cog in the system so that they can just pay the minimum wage and keep the school running. Um, My wife is very passionate about teaching, especially the younger kids, but there is not a lot of opportunities in our neighborhood as well as there is not a great financial incentive to pursue her passionate teaching job. She really wants to be a linchpin in the teaching job, but uh, the situation is not that great here. I'm very curious to know your advice and thoughts on this. Uh, 
thank you so much for your um, knowledge and thoughts and take care. Thank you for this, Raja. You're a great dad and your kid's lucky to have you. I think it's important to start by saying there's absolutely nothing wrong with your son. There is nothing wrong with a kid who doesn't fit in. There's something wrong with the match between the kid and the system. And there is no system that I am aware of, no educational system, where every kid fits in all the time. And often, because the system needs to be in charge, because the system doesn't do well when it gets twisted out of shape, the system says to the kid, there is something wrong with you. Now, the system might be the principal, or the system might be the bully, or the system might be what's happening during recess, or the system might be what one overworked teacher is doing in any given moment. But we have a lot of data that shows that kids who have different attention spans, who are skilled differently, who have different ways of learning, in all of these situations, it's tempting to say these kids have issues, that there's some defect that needs to be fixed, that they need to be medicated. Well, what's really happening is there is a mismatch between the system and the kid. And we have to decide how important is it to fix that mismatch. And then we have to say, and what is the best way to do it? Well, here's something that is often overlooked, particularly among people who are, quote, high achievers, unquote. And it's this. As Zig used to say, if you get lost, this was before GPS, if you get lost in a strange town and you're going to ask for directions and there's three kids standing by the side of the road and you pull over to ask for directions, who are you going to ask? And the answer is probably the tallest one. We ask the tallest one because we assume that the tallest kid is the oldest kid and we assume that the oldest kid knows best. And one of the things that parents who care about their kids often do is get frustrated that their kid is, quote, held back. But if we live in a system where achievement and learning are based on certain forms of interaction and a kid's chronological maturity is different than other kids, sometimes it makes sense not for that kid to be going through education as fast as possible but for them to, in fact, be the oldest person in the room, the tallest person in the room, the most experienced person in the room. Because what we know is that there's a long history of people who are taller doing well in most cultures. Why? Height has nothing to do with it unless you're playing basketball. However, because the world treats taller people as if they know what's going on, they are more likely to talk to them differently, trust them more, give them the benefit of the doubt. And so your child is being told that the status quo is rejecting them because they can't fit in because they're not willing to speak up and present in a way that works for that institution. Well, one choice is to make the kid feel bad. I don't think that's useful. Another choice is to move the kid to a different setting. In this case, your wife who is already a teacher, who is being under-respected, could spend time schooling that kid at home. But another option is to realize that when your child is in a classroom of kids who are younger than they are, they might find the confidence to speak up. Because it's not a race to see who gets through school the fastest. That in fact, 
The challenge is to help kids develop in ways that give them confidence and satisfaction and joy going forward. And if they're always behind in physical interactions or intellectual ones or emotional ones, because they're the youngest, it might make sense to try having them be the oldest. I'm going to touch a little bit on your wife's conundrum in a future question, but thank you for reaching out and big hugs to your family. What a great episode, Seth. Um, Help Wanted Paradox. It's Lauren Greif from Chicago. And my question is, given your book and the many articles regarding linchpin jobs and becoming a linchpin, specifically from Toronto's Rothman School of Management and your attempt to create a linchpin job portal, what would you say is the best resource today to uncover them outside of help-wanted job postings? Thanks for this, Lauren. I edited your question a little bit to get to the heart of it, which is, yes, we started a board years ago called Linchpin Jobs. And basically what I did was asked readers in my blog who had a special job, a job that wasn't a cog job, a job that wasn't straight out of the pages of the e-myth, a job that needed people who could lead. And we gave them a chance to post those jobs for free. And we ran the job board for over a year. And we ended up stopping it because we weren't getting enough submissions. The reason we weren't getting enough submissions is because people have been so thoroughly indoctrinated that they don't believe there are any jobs like that out there. And when there were jobs like that out there, they don't believe that they're real and they show up treating them like cog jobs. The mismatch we have right now is this. Very few organizations believe they can find linchpins when they need them. And very few employees believe companies when they say that's what they're actually looking for. Because so often, our hearts have been broken. We've created a role for somebody who can lean into things and lead, and the person we hired who said they wanted to didn't. Or we've been promised that that's the job that's on offer, but it turns out it's not. Responsibility and authority are in this awkward dance because responsibility is pretty easy to get if you want to take it. Authority is rarely handed out, understandably so. Looking for people who are willing and eager to take responsibility is a challenge that just about every HR person has. And then putting people into a setting where they're going to take that responsibility and lead without authority, it rarely works the way we hope. And so in the previous question from Roger, where we heard about his wife struggling because the school districts, under pressure from parents and taxpayers and people who haven't thought it through, are trying to reduce costs and also lower authority because many of the indoctrinated teachers have fought taking responsibility. And there are ways around this. So two things that I want to suggest. The first one is if you are one of those people who wants to take responsibility, insist upon it. And if the organization you are working with won't let you take responsibility, leave and go bring your joy and magic somewhere else. And if you're a teacher, that might mean starting your own school. Three kids, five kids, 10 kids. You will find students if you are willing to lean into your responsibility. 
The Acton Academy has done this around the United States and in other countries, and the results are pretty stunning to see. Is it easy? Is it as easy as it should be where someone with skill and passion can get a job that they deserve? No, of course not. It should be, but it's not because the system doesn't welcome it. And then the second half of it is this. If you are looking for a job job as opposed to starting your own thing, where is your body of work? Because as you build a body of work that you publish to the world, I made this and I made that, people will find it. And when they find it, they will seek you out. A friend of mine interviews people all the time. And he has come to the conclusion that it doesn't pay to say to an engineer or a designer, tell me where you worked and show me your resume. Because it doesn't mean anything that you were on a team. It doesn't mean anything that you worked with a famous brand. Instead, he says, show me your work. Show me what you shipped. Show me what you made. Show me what you led. And if you can't easily answer those questions, now you know what to do in your spare time. That what we all have the opportunity to do is find a project, a nonprofit project, a hobby project, a charity project, and go do something extraordinary there. That your commits to GitHub, they mean something. That that thing you built on Kickstarter that you can point to, it means something. Your body of work, as Pam Slim has so eloquently written about, says more about you than your resume ever could. So I'm not sure we should be looking for a new middleman the way Lynchpin Jobs was. I think the opportunity here is to lead, not to wait for someone to invite you along for the ride. I'm in total alignment with you on our responsibility as leaders and in theory as human beings, but particularly as leaders, to ensure that we offer everyone around us the opportunity the space to truly experience and feel the dignity. It costs us nothing. And the reward of seeing someone accept that acknowledgement of their humanity is priceless. You can't put value to it. However, I find that it's easy to point fingers when a manager or authority figure refuses to offer that opportunity. But what happens when you offer it to someone who just refuses to get out of victim mode or still wants to play out entitlement games? How would you suggest dealing with that as a leader? Thank you for this question. And again, I took a little slice out of the center. I hope that's okay. The thing about dignity is it needs to be offered to us and it needs to be accepted. And for too long, dignity has not been offered to people who need it, who deserve it, who will treasure it. And if it has been denied to somebody for too long, when a little bit of it shows up, we shouldn't be surprised that people are suspect. We shouldn't be surprised that people have trouble accepting that dignity after such a long drought of being disrespected. So I hear you. Then when we extend ourselves to someone, when we open the door for them, when we give them a chance to accept responsibility, to be a linchpin, to lead, and they don't take it, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because what else do they expect from us? Well, to make up for decades of disrespect, maybe what they need from us is consistency. Maybe what they need from us is for us over and over again to give that person the benefit of the doubt, to see them, to see where they're struggling, to see what they're stuck with, to see what they're afraid of. Because I believe that talent is overrated and skill 
is a magical opportunity because it means we can learn it. And I think we can learn to accept dignity. I think we can learn to seek out responsibility. And I think we can learn to lead. And that gives me optimism about what's possible in the future. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.